This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. I think the basic message is the micromobility market is growing and is growing everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean geographically. I also mean all of the different segments. I mean sharing. I mean subscription. I mean ownership. So it's a great market to be in. That's the McKinsey partner, Kirsten Heinecke. Kirsten joins me today to talk about e-scootering to work, the future of micro cars, and other cool examples of tiny transportation. After that, the book, Jerks at Work. We'll hear from the author, Professor Tessa West, who was recently featured in our Author Talk series. So, Kirsten, I am slightly abashed to speak with you today because I will confess that I was for several years a micromobility skeptic. And lo, these many years later, my family takes tremendous merriment and delight in pointing out not just the profusion of bicycles on our local streets, but also now all these e-bikes and scooters and delivery mopeds and so forth. You are based in Germany in our Frankfurt office. Have you seen a similar trajectory locally over time? So I'd say definitely. What we've seen over here is that, especially with COVID, the number of bikes on the street, it's just grown up massively. And one anecdote is in our office building here in Frankfurt, they actually had to take away parking spots for cars because they couldn't fit all the bikes anymore. And that was a thing that happened post-COVID, even though people still tend to not go into the office that frequently, right? So there's definitely a massive increase in, in micromobility usage, in micromobility ownership, in micromobility that is shared. So we do see lots of bikes, obviously, lots and lots of e-bikes. We also see these cargo bikes where people either put their kids in the front or in the back, depending on the model, they put something else in. And we also do see um, uh, vehicles that look completely different and go to be something between a car and a bike, actually. And I think this is going to grow even further. So we're going to see more and more of these vehicles on the road. So anecdotally, we're seeing all this evidence of micromobility in our day-to-day life in various forms. You co-lead McKinsey's Center for Future Mobility, and you've been studying this kind of disruption for some time. What does the actual research tell us about attitudes toward micromobility at this juncture? So we do see a couple of things. One is micromobility is really the only thing that's really up in usage post-COVID. So many other things are sort of back to pre-COVID levels. Public transit, I have to admit, is still down versus pre-COVID levels. Uh, Car sharing and then also e-hailing and ride-hailing and so on, they're sort of on the same level, maybe a bit up. But micromobility is the only piece where we do see in what consumers say they do and what they say they want to do, but also an actual usage and an increase. Uh, They wanted to have fresh air. Also, public transit maybe wasn't the most attractive option due to perceived risk of infection. Uh, The other reason is that especially over here in Europe, the cities invested very heavily into bringing micromobility infrastructure, so bike lanes especially, to another level. And therefore, it has gotten much, much more convenient, faster, but also much safer to actually use the bike to get from A to B. I'm I'm also personally one of those uh, COVID converts. So I've I've been converted from going to work by car every single morning to 
going to work by ekexcluder every single morning whenever I go to the office. And it's, it's the best time of the day. It's my 12 minutes of quiet time. And it's always nice, even in wintertime when it's cold outside. So I've sort of upgraded my wardrobe, uh, bought gloves and so on, right, to make sure I actually get to the office without having frozen to death. But it's an amazing experience, and I can only recommend it for those of us lucky enough to live so close to the office that they can actually commute to work by micromobility, whatever form factor it is. So say something more about the use cases that prevail for micromobility. Do folks look at e-scooters and mopeds and the like as alternatives to cars? You think you mentioned them as an alternative to public transportation but also as alternative to cars or kind of as complementary to cars for different kinds of travel? So I'd say it, it really depends on the persona, right? I think for most people, it is complementary, but it's still replacing certain use cases. So for some folks, it is replacing the morning commute. For many others, it is replacing trips to go to appointments, but also especially trips once you sort of are in downtown or in, in the central business district and you need to go to different types of appointments and basically drive around in the city. The other thing we do see is people tend to use different modes of micromobility or different form factors for different types of trips. So the e-kick scooter is also very popular for leisure trips as a tourist in a city and you want to explore the city or when you want to go quickly from A to B, also at nighttime, or when you're sort of doing leisure trips other than tourism. The moped is more something for larger cities where you have higher distances, right, longer distances, and need to get from A to B maybe a bit more quickly. And then the bike is also very much used for the commuting and shopping use case. And in that case, it's more of an ownership thing rather than a mobility as a service or sharing thing. So in New York, we see lots of delivery happening on mopeds, particularly food delivery and so forth. And it occurs to me that high-speed package delivery is such a thing. It was on the upswing pre-pandemic and then seems to have spiked, at least in my building, during the pandemic. Do you see a future for micromobility related to that famously vexing challenge of last-mile delivery? Absolutely. So I was at uh, the Eurobike convention in Frankfurt, which is a trade fair that focuses exclusively on bikes and micromobility and so on. And I saw so many vehicles that are dedicated to last mile logistics. So think of it like a bike that actually has four wheels. It has a huge sort of cupboard at the end, right? A huge box at the back where you can put in a significant amount of packages, where you can put in food and keep it warm, where you could put in groceries and keep it cool. So we will see many, many form factors, and we will also see larger form factors. We'll continue to see the person on a bike only sort of delivering a small package or delivering food with a traditional vehicle. But I think we will see these form factors move into accommodating the actual requirements of people who do deliver some type of goods. It doesn't matter if it's food or if it's groceries or if it's just, quote unquote, a package. So yes, I think the future of last mile has a significant component of these tinier vehicles to it especially for anything that needs to be express delivered or where there's a certain willingness of people to actually pay for that for the delivery. Will it be cost competitive with uh, delivering packages via a van or via a small truck? Probably not, right? Because those are just extremely competitive when it comes to cost per package and, and TCO. But it will definitely be a sizable addition to the system, especially for all of those 
things that need to be delivered quite quickly. And again, where there is a willingness of the consumer to actually pay for getting something more quickly. Some countries must be farther ahead on micromobility than others. I'm thinking of Amsterdam, for example, which is notoriously famous for its bicycles, early, early micromobility. How, how does uptake of these various micromobility vehicles vary by geography? Yeah, so I think we have a couple of countries, like you were saying, in a couple of cities where there is lots of different types of micromobility, right? So the south of Europe historically has had a very high share of mopeds, and this continues to be a super relevant thing. Countries like the Netherlands with Amsterdam being in the lead, or also the Nordics in Europe, Copenhagen, I think is a good example, but also other cities in the Nordics. They just have a long tradition of bicycles. China has a huge tradition of bicycles and also other, uh, other types of vehicles. There's lots of uh, motorized two-wheelers and three-wheelers when it comes to Southeast Asia, India. And then the U.S. is probably one of the developed nations that is a bit further behind when it comes to micro-mobility usage, simply because distances are larger, the car is very convenient, and quite frankly, because especially outside of cities like New York City, the infrastructure isn't necessarily up to taking safe rides with a bike over the micro-mobility vehicle. So let's talk about that a little bit, about the investment necessary. What are some of the examples of infrastructural changes that cities might have to make in order to enable uptake of this kind of alternative? So I think the most basic one is replace car lanes with bike lanes and make sure that the bike lanes that are being built are a not a meter or a meter and 50 wide, but actually do replace a proper car lane. So two meters, two meters and 50, right? So that you have two bikes who can safely overtake each other. Ideally, somewhat separated from car traffic, either with a, um, uh, with a proper separation. There can also be other things, but there should, should be some kind of clear separation between the car lanes and the bike lanes. That's, I think, the most basic thing cities can do. Next level is putting in bike lanes is good. But putting them in systematically and thinking about how people actually travel from a certain point to another certain point and make sure that this entire journey is actually covered with proper bike lanes makes a huge difference. I think the other big piece is thinking about proper parking. So uh, I did post a picture on LinkedIn the other week with the scooters parked in front of our office. I didn't mean any harm by it. I actually just said, look at all these scooters, look at all these people that came by scooter they saved so much CO2, they saved so much space, and I do stand by that. But the entire discussion on LinkedIn exploded around people saying, yeah, but it looks ugly and they should be parked in a more proper way. We need docking stations and so on. And I agree. I think there's a point to be made that these vehicles can be parked in a more orderly fashion. And I think cities can also do something about designating certain areas for proper parking, maybe even taking away parking spots for cars and then making sure that these vehicles cannot be parked everywhere. How do the safety statistics actually look? At least in the U.S., we see so much of a trend toward macro versus micro. There's an explosion of SUVs and other big cars for convenience reasons, I guess. How does the safety data play out? So what we've seen in the data is it's okay, I would say. So we've seen some statistics where there obviously there are some accidents. And of course, the number of accidents with micromobility has gone up over the last years. Why? Because A, 
there is more movement again post-COVID, B, there's more micromobility, and C, there are some new form factors that didn't exist before. So obviously the number of accidents with, say, e-kick scooters went up in 2022 over 2021, and it's probably going to go up again in 2023, simply because this is a growing industry, more people are using the vehicles, and so on. The share of accidents, or sort of the accident frequency is... I'm not going to say it's high, but it's sort of is okay, I would say. And you do see some differences between the form factors. So I saw in a report that the most dangerous vehicle or the vehicle with the highest number of accidents is actually an e-bike. And that's not necessarily because of the e-bike as a form factor, but because the e-bike has a certain bias towards a certain age group and ridership where there seems to be a bit, a bit higher proficiency for accidents, say like this, right? But I think the the whole notion of safety of these vehicles is is okay, right? But there is definitely still a lot of room to to make the vehicle safer, to um, introduce infrastructure like we discussed, to um, uh, actually make usership of these vehicles much, much safer than it is today. You just raised an interesting point on demographics. What are the demographics of micromobility users look like? So yes, there is a bias towards people sort of, of, of age less than 49, right? Uh, and there is also a bias towards men, especially for e-kick scooters, which is interesting because I don't see any reason why uh, an e-kick scooter would appeal more to men than it does to women. But I'm also a man, so <laughs> maybe that's that's my problem. I think the other the other piece is we do see a uh, few elderly riders, especially when it comes to shared micromobility. And we do see when we look at e-cargo bikes, a uh, very high adoption among young families and um, uh, yeah, among young families, simply because this is sort of the perfect use case where you can actually put your young kids and so on in an urban environment. So yes, definitely a bias towards younger people, but not that it's only ridden by people sort of below 30 or below 25. Let's talk about some of the implications of your research. And there are various stakeholders, I would imagine. I think the basic message is the micromobility market is growing and is growing everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean geographically. I also mean all of the different segments. I mean sharing. I mean subscription. I mean ownership. So it's a great market to be in, number one. The other piece is when you then look at cities, we do believe that the shared micromobility market, doesn't matter which form factor is here to stay, will grow sizably. And the key question for players is really now, how can they turn profitable? How to become a permanent part of, of daily city life when we talk about shared micromobility. When we talk about ownership or vehicles that I have sort of for me as my personal use, I think one of the biggest trends is going to be subscription. The other trend is offering people a portfolio of micromobility vehicles that they can then subscribe to or even own. Um, because we do believe that there isn't a single micromobility vehicle that can truly replace a car. So if you truly want to get rid of your car and live micromobility only or micromobility plus car sharing, if you do a trip outside the city, it's going to be a combination of form factors. And I think it's going to be interesting to see sort of which players will offer these types of combinations first. The uh, possibility to actually have a bike, a cargo bike, maybe a scooter for certain trips, and then maybe something else entirely that's even larger at home in a clever model, how I can subscribe to it, finance it, own parts of it, whatever it is. So 
earlier in this conversation, you alluded to a vehicle that sounded something like a micro car. And I was imagining, you know, anyone who's been to India has seen, for example, those auto rickshaws or, you know, in Southern Europe, as you alluded to, there are tiny, tiny cars, those little smart cars and so forth. What What is a micro car? And do you expect them to catch on in places like the United States, where the trend again has been towards supersize? So I think there will be a form factor somewhere between a bike and a car that's going to catch on, but it's going to look different in Europe versus the US and other geographies. So let me talk real quickly about Europe. I think in Europe, we're going to see three-wheeler bikes, uh, four-wheeler bikes that will give you a certain protection from the weather by having a protective shell around it, by having a proper windscreen. They will also have a seat for the driver and then maybe two smaller seats for, say, children or so in the back. They might also give you a chance to, in a modular fashion, take out the seats and put in something where you can actually store cargo so that you can take a suitcase or you can also take uh, your groceries and so on. So we will see these types of vehicles and they're going to be allowed to drive on bike lanes to a certain extent, but they're going to be much closer to a bike than they will be to a car. I think we'll also see the micro car. Think of it like a smart car, but even smaller. And these vehicles already exist today. In the US, I'm not sure. So I think when we think about a city like New York City, then yes, it's probably probably these smaller vehicles are going to catch on too. We're going to see these larger bikes or the micro cars and so on that might make sense. In other very dense cities in the U.S., maybe in certain parts of it, in the cities that are a bit more spread out, which I would assume is sort of 90% of the U.S. cities, right? Maybe even more, but also in the countryside and also in the countryside in Europe, I don't think we're going to see many of these vehicles. Say more about that. We've heard so much about self-driving cars. What is the sort of trajectory for self-driving e-scooters or e-bikes? What does that look like? Will that be a dominating concept? I have my doubts because the cost that you need in terms of the sensors you need to put on it and so on, they're just super high. And the use case of repositioning these by being autonomous is fairly limited. So I think the, uh, while we will see autonomous cars and other types of autonomous vehicles quite short term, I doubt that we're going to see a significant number of autonomous bikes or scooters or other micromobility vehicles. You have spent a lot of time researching mobility disruptions. When you project forward to, say, 2030, what do you think the transportation landscape might look like? How might my local street look different? So I'll give you the version of 2030 for the most progressive cities, and then that might be 2035 for some of the less progressive cities. If you imagine a city today in a street today that has four lanes, two lanes going in each direction, and then maybe one row of parking on the other side, and then maybe a small curb and maybe a bike lane or maybe not a bike lane. I think what will change is we're going to see a complete shift in how the space is utilized. So I imagine two lanes in the center of the road for vehicles, maybe private vehicles, but in many cases only shared autonomous vehicles. Then we will see a very wide lane for micromobility vehicles, including the goods delivery micromobility vehicles. And this will ultimately still leave a massive amount of space for other things. So we're not going to need parking anymore because 
you're not going to be allowed to have a personal vehicle anymore, at least in highly urban environments. And therefore, we're freeing up a lot of space that we can use for all the other things. So the micromobility, the autonomous vehicles, but we can also use it to put in more parks, to put in more cafes, to have other uses. But basically, we'll see a complete refurbishment, if you will, of what cities look like. Will it happen and has it started to happen in cities like New York? Yes. I get all these all these Instagram reels where I see sort of New York has taken the following street and put in a huge bus line and bike lanes and so on. I think that's the future. And I think that's going to happen because ultimately we need to get away from personal mobility. We need to get away from cars, at least in urban environments, because they congest a lot, they emit a lot, and it's by far not the most efficient way of transport. That's amazing. We've also seen converging stressors on cars lately, right? Not just rising gas prices, but chip shortages that have affected the availability of cars and so forth. Do you imagine any of that will accelerate the uptake of micromobility options? I think so. I think there's a, a combination of multiple things. So I think one is it's harder to get a car. People are keeping their cars longer. But then it's also harder to use cars in many sense, right? Because obviously gas is, is more expensive. We're going to electric vehicles to a certain extent. We're going to see city tolls and bans for cars. So there's many things that happen. There isn't this massive single inflection point where sort of 10 cities in a country say from day one to another, we're going to ban cars, right? I don't see that happening. But I think this gradual shift has already started to happen and COVID was only an acceleration for it making the move towards, let's say, fewer miles in cars and therefore more micromobility, more other means of transport happen. And I think this is going to continue to happen. Kirsten, this was such a fascinating discussion. Lots of fun. Thanks so much for joining us today. Love the discussion. I could talk about mobility and micromobility for days. Thank you so much for having me. So micromobility can make life easier, but toxic coworkers, not so much. Let's hear from author Tessa West about her book, Jerks at Work. The C-suite is the place where if there's going to be a cultural contagion of jerks, that's where it happens. The workplace has changed a lot now where if the C-suite is behaving one way, even if it doesn't directly affect you as an employee because you never interact with that C-suite, you're just very intolerant for working for a company that embraces this behavior culturally. So what I would say is the C-suite is in a prime place to either kind of turn that jerk behavior on or off because they decide whether that company is going to be a breeding ground for jerk behavior. One thing that we've really learned during the pandemic is that the people that are difficult to work with, we feel like we can avoid them much more, but the reality is they're just as effective at kind of destroying um, our well-being and our productivity at work as they were before. So when we're not interacting with each other, we're not having casual conversations, water cooler conversations, walking to the coffee shop, stopping by the office of our neighbor, we're not really getting all this information that we used to that kind of signals who's difficult to work with and what the strategies are for dealing with it. So a lot of us are kind of going alone in dealing with jerks at work now, now that many of us are working from home by ourselves. The only real way of solving for jerks at work is to have friends at work, but often not the types of friends that we're thinking about. 
not our best friends, not the people that we like to have drinks with and complain about difficult people with, but allies. And allies at work kind of take a different form. So think about someone you work with who you're maybe not best friends with, you're not that close with, but what they have is knowledge about the workplace and a whole bunch of social connections that you don't actually have. So the best allies can actually help you expand your social network introduce you to potential other targets of your jerk at work or other people who can pull levers of power to help you understand, you know, what will it take to convince your boss to care about your jerk at work? I think one of the biggest misconceptions we have about thinking about jerks at work is that they don't have any social skills, that they can't read a room, that they, you know, aren't paying attention to how other people are, you know, supposed to be treating them and these kinds of things. But the reality is most jerks at work actually have incredible social skills. So I think about, for example, the free rider. They tend to be very charismatic. They actually utilize their social skills to get ahead. And the same is true for someone like the kiss up, kick downer. They know exactly the right ways of complimenting you behind your back so that their boss won't suspect them. Um, another misconception is that they know how their behavior makes other people feel. So most of us assume that if we're dealing with a jerk at work, this person is doing this intentionally and they know it makes other people feel badly. But the reality is almost no one gives negative feedback at work. It's just non-normative to give people negative feedback. We feel uncomfortable doing it and so we often avoid it. But we assume these individuals really know how their behavior is affecting others, even though they rarely do. And the last misconception about jerks at work is that they enjoy doing what they're doing. Most of the time, the behavior that jerks are engaging in that harms you actually also harms them. So it doesn't really help them to behave this way, but they're doing it for lots of reasons ranging from you know, getting poor management skills to doing whatever it takes to get ahead. That's just the culture of the company. So why is it important for us to consider whether we are the jerk? Most of us are a combination of good and bad. We can be amazing at work, we can be difficult at work. And I think it's important to think about what do you look like at work when you're at your absolute worst, when you're sleep deprived, you don't have resources, because I think we all have the potential to be someone who's not ideal, a micromanager, a neglectful boss, a credit stealer, a freeloader when we get overwhelmed. And I think kind of half the battle in dealing with jerks at work is really detecting your own inner jerk and, and not just stopping that behavior, but looking at what the behaviors are that precede it. What is it that really turns you into that less ideal version of yourself and then develop strategies of what you're going to do instead? Um, you know, as we kind of go through this process of, of cleaning out our jerks at work, but also admitting to ourselves when we're contributing to that problem. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.